sitting there thinking about um, the middle part of Luke as we go through this uh, this section, and we really have have just interpreted everything that we're going to see in the lesson. Part of me thinks uh, all I can do is muddy the water at this point. But but uh, when when God's people acknowledge uh, what is going on and the grace of God when he gives us good news and, and uh, heals us and helps us as well as the faith that is required throughout the process, even when things don't go uh, the way we wish they would, that, uh, that's a large part of what we're going to learn as we continue today in this uh, 13th <coughs> chapter of Luke. But before we get there, uh, <clears throat> I want to get back to something that I mentioned before, and uh, <clears throat> you're in trouble. I have my markers with me today, so. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, I mentioned. Uh, a couple of lessons ago, maybe one, I don't remember when we did this, about these concentric rings. The beginning of Genesis is fundamental to every single thing that we spoke in prayer a while ago. It's fundamental to every moment that you and I have lived, will live, until we go to meet our Savior. <clears throat> but uh, it's too important uh, to, uh, to ignore, and I realize some of you are hampered <clears throat> by stuff in the way. I can't do anything about that. I can try to get out of the way and not be the stuff myself. But uh, <clears throat> these rains again come from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Almost all of it referenced in Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3 after God has created this universe and we have two human beings in it, sin, <clears throat> and I mentioned alienations that come from that act of Adam and Eve, and those alienations, again, are with all of us from the moment we are born, indeed from the moment we're conceived until the moment we die. And the alienations, I mentioned four of them, uh, alienated from God, that comes about in, in Genesis when God throws Adam and Eve out of the garden and posts angelic guards to prevent them from getting back in. But previous to that, uh, they have been in perfect communion with God, whatever that meant. Uh, they're walking in the garden with God, whatever that meant. And <clears throat> afterwards, that's not an option anymore. It's not an option for Adam and Eve. It's not an option for you and for me. Uh, we've got communion with God in various ways. And the reason for the specialness of Christmas, the incarnation is going to go a long way uh, toward making that more available, but it still will not return to what Adam and Eve saw until we are with the Lord face to face. Uh, but that doesn't end the problem. The problem that sin and the alienation that sin causes then causes this issue with myself. I am conflicted from, from my sin. Uh, that can manifest itself in a number of ways. And uh, it, 
it's, uh, I've mentioned Romans 7, where Paul is, is uh, flummoxed. Uh, he is frustrated. He is angry with himself as he considers his own struggle with himself and his sinfulness. And he goes through the latter part of that chapter talking about uh, how amazed he is at the things he wishes he could do, he doesn't. And the things he would like to avoid are the things he, he generally gravitates toward. And his conclusion, just as the conclusions of our prayers today, his conclusion is to go back to Jesus. That doesn't end it either, however. The alienation out of that third category comes between myself and other people. Now, this can take on any number of, um, of issues in our lives, as we all are very, very familiar with. It is, um, it's why we cherish those, those moments when things are going well, uh, jobs we have, uh, when, when there is nobody who is, who is trying to, uh, to buck the system or, or somehow, for whatever reason, uh, crosses swords with us, those moments are rare. So there, there are issues with others, and that uh, probably is seen today in Israel. Uh, the peak of that is when others will become so... Uh, so alienated due to their sin that they even pick up weapons and kill people. Uh, we generally call that war. Uh, it can get to the point where they will behead babies. Uh, this is the, how deep and malicious sin will become. But finally, there's a fourth ring out there, and that's an alienation because of Adam and Eve's sin that we have with the universe itself. And what I mean by that is that these, uh, these issues uh, don't just stop with us. They include the world in which we live, uh, a world which Paul says has been frustrated by our sinfulness in it. And that can, can manifest itself in anything from, uh, from the fear of an asteroid crashing into the earth uh, to a volcano, to a tsunami, to an earthquake, to, to uh, tornadoes, to, in Adam's case, uh, God said, okay, you're going to have to work for it from now on, <clears throat> and I'm going to make it hard for you to work for it, because I'm going to put rocks in the ground, and I'm going to put hindrances to you from inanimate objects in the universe. Uh, everybody today, well, a certain portion of people today are constantly talking about global issues uh, of the universe, whether it's warming or whether it's not warming and all of these kinds of things. All of that comes under this one act of sin that occurred in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it has manifested itself in every one of our lives. And where this is, is going to lead, of course, uh, is going to be death. That too comes in as an issue from this alienation. Uh, death is not a natural process. Death is something that, uh, that Jesus himself grows very angry with. He is, he is grieved that we go through this dying process. But nonetheless, it is one of the penalties that comes in for this sinfulness. Uh, now, <clears throat> one thing that's important uh, to remember 
uh, I guess it was last week that I, I laid out those eight steps of, of, of the process of, of God capturing a heart for himself. Uh, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, the effectual calling, the regeneration, the faith repentance, uh, justification, those kinds of things. And I mentioned, I had them listed on one side, and I mentioned think of it like an accordion uh, because they can happen quickly or they can happen over an entire lifetime. And many of us uh, will come to points in our lives when we worry or perhaps doubt our faithfulness, when we have fallen yet again into some sort of besetting sin and we are concerned whether, oh my goodness, am I really a Christian or not? Uh, it can get that bad. And uh, that also, these concentric aspects of alienation need also to be seen as something that can overlap. It's unusual that this sinfulness in our hearts will be a conflict only between ourselves and God, or only between uh, an internal struggle with my own heart, or only with others and so forth and so on. Often, uh, they will overlap. Uh, so, the one thing that I need, I'll try to talk on my back is to you. <clears throat> If you remember your high school math or whatever, you heard about something called Venn diagrams. Uh, you, can, you can use those things here. Uh, think of those four alienations, something like this. If, if this middle circle is God and this one is myself, uh, this one is between me and you, and this one is the universe, and sometimes an issue with sin in our lives is going to involve several or even all four of them. Ultimately, of course, it always involves all four because God is definitely going to be a part of every aspect of our struggle with sin. Uh, but if it's, if it's between myself and someone else, then I've got this section of overlap. What is God teaching me here as I struggle with, with uh, you or with you struggle with me, whatever. And those two could overlap with the universe. Maybe a tornado comes and destroys uh, my house, but it doesn't touch your house, which is 10 feet away from mine. My heart may be struggling. Uh, I've got an issue with God. My heart is, is struggling because you're sitting there fat and sassy and I'm destroyed because of something that happened in the universe. So you see how these things tumble and overlap. Uh, now, there's one more thing I want you to, to remember from Genesis 3 that is critical also. I'm, I'm saying all of this because we're going to run into it in the passage we're looking at today. Uh, there were two voices in Genesis chapter 3, two voices and only two voices. Those two voices remain the same today. Uh, that Adam and Eve had to contend with. The only one they knew was God initially until another personage, if you will, came into their lives, a person named Satan, a satanic, uh, angelic, created being. Essential to remember that. God is not created. God is eternal, but Satan was created. Uh, so there is a hierarchy here. Satan is not God. You're not looking at two equal antagonists here. You're looking at God, but Satan enters the picture, and he is the one that draws 
Adam and Eve into this sinfulness. Those two voices contend into your life and my life every day. They continue to do that uh, until this point of death. That is the battle that you we hear about and see throughout Scripture, and we know very, very well, only too well, in our own hearts as we contend with these alienations between myself and God, myself internally, myself and others, and myself in this universe in which I live. Uh, now, the issue, of course, is how am I going to deal with all of that? That's a lot to deal with. And as we all know, too often, that wins. And we're not what we need to be, and we're not what we, we should be. Uh, how do you live well in the kingdom, in other words? Today we're going to run into a couple of little bitty two-verse parables, two of them, two two-verse parables of the kingdom. Uh, there are many parables in the Gospels that relate to the kingdom. Uh, I'm going to submit to you that these two little bitty things that we, we there are, they are so familiar that we, we don't think about them, and I will... Um, gingerly give you my opinion is that they are essentially misinterpreted by the vast majority of Christians and have been for millennia. So we're going to see a little bit of opposition uh, going on today. Um, but uh, remember from last week, <clears throat> the solution that uh, came into the issues. Remember what we saw last week. Jesus came to these people as he's walking toward Jerusalem, making his journey toward Jerusalem. It's going to take months. Uh, he comes in, in contact with these people and he tells them about hypocrisy and he shows them the illustration of it from the religious leaders of, of Jerusalem and, and Israel, the Pharisees, and he tells them, don't be a hypocrite. And remember what a hypocrite, a hypocrite is somebody who thinks everything is tracking exactly as it should be when it isn't. And last week he showed them, here's some things that can happen. Sometimes a terrorist comes into your life as the little illustration that began the 13th chapter of Luke with Pontius Pilate mixing the blood of the people he had murdered uh, with the wine and that's the only time you get this incident in scripture. Uh, but it was clearly an act of terrorism, just as we are seeing in the world today, not only in Israel, but uh, we see it over and over and over again. Anytime you turn on the news, you will see this kind of thing. And he says, but you know, you don't have to be in the pathway of a terrorist. Remember those people, Jesus says in the beginning of 13, whose tower fell on them. They didn't know the tower was going to fall. They were just going about their business at the base of some sort of tower and the tower fell and it killed a bunch of them. And their initial response, as he knew their hearts, was to think, well, maybe they were the sinful people that you arranged uh, to be under the tower at that moment in time. And Jesus anticipates that, said, no, these people are no more sinful than you are anybody that you know. And he's saying that sometimes these accidents happen. And what he's illustrating in those two things are right here on this board. This alienation can lead to many, many different issues that are extremely challenging. How do you meet that? You meet it 
the way we began this class in prayer. You meet it by being grateful when God pulls you out of the pickle you have chosen to be in. And you meet it when he simply gives you good things or even if it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to, you meet him in faith. That was the secret we came to. That's why last week at the beginning of chapter 13, over and over, Jesus kept saying, believe and repent or perish. Now, uh, we looked at that. <clears throat> we looked at that notion, we've, we've mentioned it often, And we've, we mentioned last week the fact that when, when uh, Jesus moves in someone's heart, it begins with effectual calling. He makes it effective. The things that I can see for myself that everybody on this planet, whether you're the native in New Guinea, which is the familiar example everybody wants to use to refute this, uh, whether you're born in an Islamic country, whether you're born in an atheistic country that's never heard about Jesus, whatever, there is something called common grace that every human can see that is calling to you. When you look and see that, that the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the water, and the rain, and the grass, and every single thing keeps repeating itself. It's what every scientist should know better. Scientists that tell you you live in a random universe have to be trying not to send myself here by just trying to finish this sentence. Uh, if indeed we live in a random universe, then there is as much chance that all of you are going to splatter against the ceiling in 10 minutes as you are seated now. Just because gravity exists now, if it's randomly distributed, maybe it ends in 10 minutes. You couldn't do science in a random universe. You shouldn't believe science in a random universe, but most atheistic scientists believe that. Uh, so... That call is made effectual. God takes what we see and so many other things. Maybe it's, it's a school teacher. Uh, maybe it's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's, I, I met with, I used to produce a little thing at Westminster Seminary called Student Profiles because I was so amazed at the stories of the students who would come to Westminster, and I remember one guy in particular from the country of Albania. And I was talking to him, I said, how did you come to the Lord? Albania is a communist country. He was walking, I made him swear to me. I didn't make him swear to the Bible. I just said, are you, are you serious with me? He was walking on the beach of Albania, came across a bottle with a note in it. He broke the bottle open, it led him to scripture quoted a few verses, led him to scripture. And here he was 10 years later getting a master's degree at Westminster Seminary in the United States. That story repeated itself over and over and over. So God made that call effectual to that man by putting his footsteps in line with that Bible and putting that verse in it and moving his heart to want to know more. After the effectual call, however, I've still got a dead heart a heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, 
and I can't respond when I'm dead to sin, Paul says, Ephesians 2. So God takes this heart out of me and puts a new heart in me. You're going to appreciate these. these <laughs> I, he puts a new heart in me that is pliable, that is, that is responsive, that responds to this effectual calling he's giving me. And then he infuses into my heart faith, but never faith alone. It's always faith that is penitent, faith and repentance. That's why when, when I wrote it, this was the third of eight and never ever, you don't ever write faith and repentance. You write faith slash repentance. You cannot have true faith that isn't penitent. You cannot have true penance that isn't coming out of a heart of true faith. And you remember the, the little um, catchphrases uh, that we had. Uh, the cats under faith, we have to have knowledge. God gives me the knowledge through his word. He gives me a heart that says, that I, I resonate with this. This is exactly what's going on in my life, and I'm going to put my trust in it. And that comes along with the three C's of repentance. Once I see all of this, I see my own sinfulness, and I confess it. It's confession, contrition, change. I confess my sin to God and to whomever I need to confess further. I, am, I have contrition. I am broken by my sin. That's Romans 7 again. And then finally, and most importantly, just as this last T is important for faith, the last C is important for repentance, I change. I seek to get rid of my sinful patterns and seek to replace them. Uh, that hamburger of Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, Put off, put on, but in the middle, 23, that's the meat. Uh, renew your mind in the Lord. Uh, this change process is never total, it's never perfect. I can't always achieve much of anything that is permanent here, but I continue to seek uh, a better way to go forward. All of this we're going to see in the passage <laughs> Coming up, by the way, I did not intend to cover this all today. Uh, we will get back to something. So behind all of this is the question, how do I change? How do I live? I drink the that. Okay, Luke 13, 10 to 21. We're not going to cover this fully today, uh, but we're going to stick a toe in the water. And what we're going to see is kingdom living and victory in the midst of the alienation of that kind of sin, that kind of sin that is comprehensive and total. Here is the key to what we're going to see. How do you live in this kind of world with this alienation and have victory in it? Three words, sober, steady, sure. Uh, <clears throat> the soberness is to be realistic. It doesn't mean that every time I pray, Jesus is going to shower wealth and, and gold nuggets at my feet. Sometimes when we pray for healing, he doesn't heal. Uh, it is a realistic soberness about living in this kingdom because I am, after all, a sinner and I will, after all, eventually die because of it. But it's steady. What does that mean? Positive slope. I've mentioned this before. Here is every... Christian's life, a jagged line, but the slope of the line, again, uh, you remember from your earlier math classes, 
Uh, you take all this jagged stuff and you crunch all the numbers together and convert it to a straight line. The straight line that's going to run is going to be positive, meaning it's above horizontal. So the slope of this line is going to be something like that. But your life is not going to be like that. Your life is going to have peaks and it's going to have valleys and it could have some very dark valleys, but that slope needs to be positive. I've mentioned uh, before that uh, all of the people who wrote, all of the people who were very intelligent Christians over the millennia, uh, talk about the fact uh, that yes, I'm still a sinner and my goodness, I can't believe it. I am more grieved the longer I live but looking back over my life, I'm better today than I was 10 years ago. I'm, I'm capable, more capable of, of dealing with my sin than I was then. So it needs to be a sober life, a steady life. You're gonna have ups and downs, but it needs to be steadily up and positive. And sure, guaranteed, why do I have a guarantee? Because Jesus has given me faith and repentance. And Jesus is the reason for the season. That's why this kind of thing that we're in in the gospel, we're in Luke, uh, we're seeing why, why December is important and why Christmas is important. <clears throat> now, turn, if you will, to Luke 13. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> Luke 13, chapter 10. We're going to look at... Uh, we're going to meet a woman here. Before we meet this, uh, this individual, I want to read a quote to you from a woman named Stephanie Hubach. Uh, Stephanie Hubach has a Down syndrome child, a son, and she wrote this sentence. Disability is a normal part of life in an abnormal world. Now we have words like disability, uh, invalid. Uh, those are those are for the Christian. We need to understand that those are should not be seen the way we see them. Disability is actually normal. You've seen the alienation and the comprehensiveness of the alienation. It is not abnormal to have a disability. Every one of us in the room has multiple disabilities because we're all dealing with that alienation from our sinfulness. She says with this Down syndrome son, disability is a normal part of life in an abnormal world that we live in an abnormal world. Jesus comes down to help begin this, uh, this process. God, of course, has been moving God sends his son uh, to, uh, to that manger in Bethlehem uh, to be uh, the ultimate straw that breaks the satanic back uh, by giving and securing salvation for those who put their faith in this son. Uh, but I want to, uh, to read you a passage from Romans chapter 8 not the passage you're probably thinking I'm going to, but uh, here's what Paul says beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That passage summarizes all of those alienations from the universe, the creation itself that is groaning to our own individual hearts and souls. Uh, Stephanie, <clears throat> let me read you a, a, a little bit more from Stephanie Hubach. She says, according to the biblical account in Genesis, tragedy struck with the fall of mankind with a devastating impact on every aspect of creation. As Paul states in Romans 8.20, that's one of the verses I read, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. Our world became an abnormal world when sin entered. Disability is simply a more noticeable form of the brokenness that is common to human experience, a normal part of life in an abnormal world. Uh, that, is a, that is a wonderful perspective once you see it through a Christian lens. And uh, this woman certainly does. Now in verse 10 of Luke chapter 13, we're going to meet someone. Verse 10 says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This, by the way, some commentators think is the last time you ever see Jesus in a synagogue. Uh, I don't, don't know about that or whether it's even important, but uh, nonetheless, Jesus, as he was had uh, his custom and the apostles, first goes to the synagogue and he's teaching on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Let's just stop right there a minute after verse 11. Uh, there's a woman here who's for 18 years has been bent over with a disabling spirit. Again, I would suggest to you that every one of us in this room have a disabling spirit, plural. Something that bends us over spiritually. This woman happens to have manifested that particular disability by being physically bent from it. We've all been there. We, we open every Sunday with prayer for these uh, folks that, uh, that we love who, who have, uh, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart issues, whether it's brain issues, whether it's, it's uh, anything and everything. And as we know, we could multiply that. Uh, those are disabling issues. Uh, this woman has a disabling spirit, interesting word there, spirit, a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. Now, nobody else in the synagogue appears to find her presence unusual. In other words, I believe this woman was there every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Uh, we are now in the 21st century, especially when, when folks have, have uh, just frightened the universe with COVID. It was certainly 
a deadly disease, killed eight or 10 million people, continues to kill people. But we're now, because of technology, we have the ability, if we wish, to stay at home. That's a bad thing. God's people need to be together. We need to be worshiping together. We need to be at church. This woman was where she needed to be, even though she had been bent over for 18 years. Now think about what that meant in the life of this woman. She's already disabled because she's female. This time in human history, uh, women were, were nothing but possessions. They were, they were nothing but uh, semi-slaves uh, in virtually every culture. And this woman is, uh, is doing what she should be doing. She's come to, to church routinely. Uh, but this disability prevented her from holding her head up. She was bent over. Kent Hughes says a posture of forced humility. That's not a bad way to look at, at all of our sinfulness. It, it forces us to be bent in ways that we, don't, uh, that we cannot stand up erect as we should until we come to faith and understand that I am a sinner, yes, but I am a sinner saved by grace and I can hold my head up because of my faith that Jesus has given me, a penitent faith. Probably has difficulty sleeping, probably is hindered in her relationships, probably limited in the work she could or shouldn't do, which perhaps made her a ward of the state, probably led to depression often, if not constantly, probably great weariness from 18 years of pain. We know what pain can do. It doesn't take much pain before we are very, very weary from it. Uh, marriage prospects, probably not. Uh, bent more with each year, pain increasing, but interestingly, there is no sign of an evil spirit with this woman. Look down to verse 16, where Jesus is speaking and he says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day. Now I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, the woman is, is in the synagogue. She's bent from 18 years by a spirit. And we find out in verse 16 that there's nothing wrong with her. Jesus himself calls her a daughter of Abraham. She has been allowed to be bent by Satan. Think about Job. When Satan comes to God and says, you let me mess with that guy and he'll deny you. And God says, I'll let you mess with him, but only so far. I'll tell you what you can and can't do. The same thing is going on with every one of us through this life of alienated sin. But here's what Jesus does in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Can you imagine if you had been in that degree of struggling for 18 years and Jesus says, you're free of it and you're, you're suddenly upright, uh, your head is up, the pain is gone, it, it's awfully difficult to imagine uh, the joy that filled that woman's heart. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her. That's a very, very unusual thing for Jesus to do. And immediately she was made straight. And what did she immediately do? She glorified God. That's why I said, when we start with our prayer time, that's exactly the right posture. 
Uh, we, we glorify God because we know that all of these issues we pray for, from surgeries to, to uh, everything else, is in the hands of God, and we humble ourselves before him. This woman does the same at the end of verse 13. But there's one guy in the room that's always a fly in the ointment. Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, the big religious leader, the big mahaf, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people, he's also a coward. He doesn't come to Jesus with anything. He goes to the people. And he said, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. You're interfering with my sermon for peace sake. Uh, Jesus comes in and he's, he heals this woman. Come on, there's six days you could have done that, Jesus. And yet you've done it on the Sabbath Verse 15, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, here's that word again. Remember the context of all of these things we're looking at. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? It's a rhetorical question. Of course she should be. Verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, the next four verses I'm going to read and that's all we're going to do. These are the two parables, verse 18 to 21. He said, therefore, catch the therefore, that's an important, it is there for a good purpose. And that is, Jesus wants to pursue this healing he's just done and he wants us to learn from it. And he says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. That's one of them. And the general understanding of that is that, well, God is the whole the kingdom of God's going to fill the universe and everybody's going to be healed and everybody's going to become Christian. Uh, we're going to challenge that reading uh, the next time we're together. Verses 20, 21. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. A little bit of leaven out of sight and it leavens the entire loaf. Again, the reading of these two little parables Many people read to think Christianity is going to conquer the entire universe. But remember the context of this event in Luke. Here are the hypocrites. Here are the Pharisees. Don't be a hypocrite. Remember, a tower may fall on you. Terrorists may break in and kill you. Things may happen. Repent or perish. Look at what comes next in beginning in verse 22 of Luke chapter 13. The narrow door. There's a remnant uh, so there's a lot to, to say about reading these couple of parables as saying, well, Christianity is going to be triumphant throughout the whole world, uh, but we're going to have to wait till next time to do it. Uh, and by the way, speaking of next time, next Sunday on the 10th, we have a congregational meeting during the Sunday school hour. So there will be no Sunday school next Sunday. So you're going to have to wait two weeks to hear the punchline. Uh, but uh, again, Everything that Jesus is teaching here is, is what we illustrate when we prayerfully come in faith, in penitent faith, to realize that we are before him 
And if he chooses to heal us, fine. If he does not, fine. Our faith eventually will get us in his presence, whether we're the thief on the cross or whether we're the apostle Paul, a murderer, by the way, or whether we just uh, live in the 21st century in Greenville and enjoy uh, the preaching and teaching of a Bible-based uh, and dedicated church. Let's pray. Father, uh, there's a lot going on here. And if we understand it clearly, it will set us to walk through this world regardless of what happens. Not to think that if we have enough money, we can buy our way out of it. Or if we're smart enough, we can prevent it. Or if we're lucky enough, maybe it won't happen to us. The point is no matter what happens in this world, we are in the midst of an alienated world, an abnormal world that will be made normal when Jesus comes again, but not before. So our own sinfulness, the sinfulness of others is handled always in the same way to get on our knees before Jesus and thank him for his sovereign providential love and grace that he pours out and that we celebrate this time of year at Christmas for sending his son to go to a cross, resurrect from that cross, from that death, and bring salvation to every single one of his children. We thank you for that grace and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.